Amen. City Church, that's all I've got for you. I want, I'm super excited about this next thing, though. Um, we are launching our brand new fall series, A Better Story, with our lead pastor, Matt Nelson. Thanks, Bodie. Awesome. And Lindsay and I were walking through the building on Friday. We want you to know the building is real, and it's coming along nicely. That's not just a thing out there. I, I, I took some pictures. They're not professional. I took them with my phone. Uh, this is the outside lobby area. This whole wall will have a, si- a map of the city. It says it will say, to see our city transformed by the gospel, our mission statement. Coming along beautifully. They were redoing the floors over there in the back part of it. This is the worship area. They're about to pour the concrete in the stage area. There'll be a huge screen in front of that pole. No, we won't be all staring at that. Um, I mean, tech booth, sound booth, uh, walls going in, insulation. So it's a real thing. And it looks beautiful. And every week that I walk in, I'm just excited to see what God's doing. Uh, Like Bodhi said, this is our all-in moment. If you've been with us, but kind of on the sideline, we need you to get in the game with us. We're going to have an incredible opportunity to reach our city when we open this facility. We need you on a serve team. We need you to partner with us to help us cross that line financially. I want to say thank you for so many of you who've been journeying with us so long to get us to this place. We're grateful for you. If you've got your Bibles, Matthew chapter 16. As we launch a new eight-week series called A Better Story. Uh, my oldest son and I started a journey together this weekend uh, with pastors, or not even pastors, just dads all around the country called Primal Path. And it's a journey into manhood. And my oldest son is 12. He'll be 13 this coming year. And so at, when he turns 13, he gets to pick a trip anywhere he wants to go. But we're going to journey with this group of people, just me and him, meeting several times a week to journey through the life of Joseph. Uh, and, and learn how to become, go from boyhood to manhood. And we started this week about going from the easy life to discomfort, that life gets hard. And how many know to become from boyhood to manhood, you have to learn the lesson that life isn't easy, that bad things happen. And sometimes the difficulties, they can shape you. And so we, we started this journey together. So I was trying to think to myself, how could we kind of have like a moment of like kicking this off? And so some of you know this, my favorite movie growing up was always Gladiator. Anybody ever see the movie Gladiator? Come on now. Thank you. Some of you in the room. We're together on this. And so my son was always like, Dad, I want to watch this movie. I'm like, buddy, you know, you've never seen a radar. It's a little bloody. Not yet. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to watch Gladiator with you this weekend as a rite of passage. So all the kids went into another room with mom and me and him sat down and he was like, Dad, is it going to get bloody? And I'm like, oh, buddy, is it ever? (laughs) Yeah, it's about to get good. And he's like, Dad, what's the best part of the movie? And I said, just wait in a minute, because they don't know, you know, like the Maximus goes through this gladiator thing. He goes into the, you know, the Rome, and Commodus brings him out. And then you remember, he turns his back on Commodus, and Commodus is like, hey, gladiator, reveal yourself. And he takes his mask off. Come on, you remember that? You get chills thinking about it. Maximus Decimus Meridius, commanders of the armies of the north, legions of the Felix, you know, <laughs> father of a murdered son, husband of a murdered wife. I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. You remember that part? I get chills right now thinking about it. And I was like, this is it, Jackson, right here. Oh man, that's awesome. Why is it a great story? Why is it? I, I grew up just loving Roman history as well. Like one of those stories of like, it's everything, betrayal, love, like sacrifice. You're giving your life for something that you believe in that's bigger than yourself. And so I'm trying to make all these spiritual parallels, but it's just really bloody. <laughs> but it was a good time. Launched us into our study. How many know we love good stories, don't we? We love good stories. We're we're hardwired for great stories. They define us. They shape us. They entertain. They teach. They inspire. We know Jesus uses them as containers of truth. He speaks in parables and stories in order to relay truth. 
Uh, neurologists and social scientists have now confirmed what our best philosophers and artists and storytellers have been saying for years, that as human beings, you and I, our brains are hardwired for story. It's actually how we make sense of our world. You are creating stories and narratives all the time in order for you to cope and deal with life, in order for you to understand the world around you. 20th century philosopher Alice Dell McIntyre says it like this. He says, before we can answer the question, who am I and what am I to do? We must first ask the question, what story or stories am I a part of? The stories you're a part of, the stories that give you meaning will ultimately shape how you see the world, how you see God, how you see your purpose and future. You know as well as I do, there are numerous stories that are competing for our allegiance, for our hearts. There are stories in culture from a consumerism uh, culture that we live in to, to mammon, and I'm actually going to be preaching on that in a few weeks and just this biblical concept of just how do we use what God has given us for the kingdom. We live in a world that now says, you know what, political power is, is where I put my allegiance, that's what I want in order to gain more power and influence. And there's different stories that people attach themselves to. We live in a culture of individualism, a me-centered, I'm the center of existence, and if I can just actualize what, what I need and live it out, then I'll find true life. There's stories in your family of origin, right? You came from a certain place. Certain things were said about you, good and bad. There are certain things you inherited. I remember Pete Scazzaro, who wrote Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he said over and over again, Jesus may live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones, right? <laughs> and so you came from somewhere. And sometimes with your family of origin, you're gonna take the blessing, but some of you look back and you're like, I don't know if there was much blessing to take. There's a lot of cycles that need to be broken. There's generational things that you're like, that's not who I am. That's not what I'm going to do. I'm not going to parent. I'm not gonna be a husband and wife like that. Those, those identity markers, they can speak to who you are. We live in a, story, in a world of false stories and competing stories. False gospels live, built on false hope and false promises. We, as followers of Jesus, believe that there is this meta-narrative, there's a grand narrative, a bigger story that is giving our life meaning and context, and it's answering the questions, what is God like? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? What, what, what's purpose in all of this? James Bryan Smith, I quoted him a lot last week too. I'm, I'm on a James Bryan Smith and a kick right now. He says this, he says, we need a story that makes us quiver, not with fear, but with delight. We need a story so big that we will never be able to grasp it, so vast that it can handle the darkness of evil and suffering and so immense that it can make sense of cancer and terrorism and death. How many know you need a story like that? If you think of the second coming of Christ or the judgment of Christ and your immediately, immediate response is fear, something needs to shift inside of you. You should long for that day. As followers of Jesus, you should long for the day that Christ redeems and renews all things. See, this sermon series that we're about to enter into is about living a life of kingdom impact. And you're gonna maybe think today's message is a little bit weird because I'm not really gonna dive into that yet. I'm gonna set us up for where we're going the next several, seven weeks. Because I could stand up here and I could be like, you know what, you need to live a life of eternal impact. You need to do something with your life. And a lot of you will leave this place and your motivation will be regret. How many know regret is not a substantial motivator? Nope, it falls short. You'll be like, you know what, I need to do better for my spouse and my kids. And all of that may last a week, may last two weeks. What you really need is a better story. 
What you really have to do is attach yourself to something that's bigger than yourself that you get caught up in. When you begin to think about it, it actually captures your heart, captures your imagination, that you feel like you're a part of this love story, you're the object of God's affection, and everything you do is a response. Let me tell you, nothing else will sustain you. Any of you grew up in the 90s and you used to go to like the hell house, judgment house things? You remember those things where they would scare the hell out of you? Nope, that doesn't work. You go into a room where someone's committed suicide or something like that, and they're like, man, you're so scared that at the end, would you like to pray a prayer with me? Of course I do. Yeah, you just scared me to death. It's going to last about two days. No, you need a better story. The gospel is not bad news that you didn't meet expectations. It's good news that you've been rescued. We've got to get that right. If you're going to live a life of significant kingdom impact, you've got to have a great story. Three things that I think you need here, if you're taking notes, to live a life of kingdom impact, we need a story that is bigger than ourselves. How sad is it when you are living a story and you are the center of that story? What a sad existence. What a sad ending to a story when you look back and said, man, I have nothing of eternal significance because I was the center of this story. Number two, we need a story that is so good and big and full of hope that it answers every fear and reconciles every problem. How many of the story of God is big enough to reconcile every fear? Everything that you can't explain, you don't have to explain because God is good enough and will redeem everything that has been broken. Not one thing will be left undone. Number three is this, we need a story that is motivated by love, not shame or regret. You need to enter a story that is motivated by love. So what is the meta-narrative, the grand story of our lives? What is it? What's shaping you? I, I gotta be honest with you. I, 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 you. Some of you know the story. I grew up in church every moment as a kid, I'm, I'm not bragging here. I knew the word of God better than most adults. I was a Bible quizzer. Anybody remember Bible quiz back in the day? Come on now. I, I'm not joking. At one time in my life, I had the book of Romans, Luke, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon memorized word for word at 14 years old. Because I had a passion to know God's word? No. Because it was a competition and I wanted to beat you. I'm just being honest. Now, did some of that get into my heart? Maybe. <laughs> and as I'm reading through some of those books today, I'm like, yeah, I, I could actually still quote that. Like, I knew God's word, but I'm going to be honest with you. I was an undergrad degree, uh, pursuing my undergrad degree in biblical studies before I really began to piece together all these stories about God and scripture. I knew this story, or I would get hung up on this story or this, but then I began to piece together this bigger story of God's salvation history, and all of a sudden things began to fall in place. It began to reshape my theology and my understanding of God when I realized, okay, then this may sound weird to some of you, that Genesis 1 and 2 was actually written in response to other creation narratives. I just thought that it just showed up. I didn't realize there were Mesopotamian creation stories like the Enuma Elish that were telling the world that creation is random chance, that you are a part of just random occurrence, and that the, the writer of Genesis is trying to set the story straight, and so he's not trying to give you details. He's not saying that God made the earth in actual seven literal 24 days. The earth could be millions and billions of years old for all we know. Science would probably prove that. What he's trying to tell you is that you are born with intention, design, and that you weren't random. How beautiful is that? No, God knit you together. Why did God create you? To fellowship with you. That's why God created you. And he looked at you, the pinnacle of his creation, and he said, guess what? You're really good. Like, you are good. That is what God speaks over you. 
Like when Adam and Eve were walking with God, that's what God wants from you. He wants fellowship and relationship and friendship. And we know that Genesis 3 screwed it up, didn't we? We know that everything began to unravel. I've used this before, but this is the image I get in my head of Genesis 3. If if we're holding this together, all of a sudden, things begin to unravel. And, and, And it just gets worse. Genesis 3 through 11 are the unraveling effects of sin. And it gets bad. Brother kills brother. God looks around at creation, he says, wickedness is everywhere. I've got to start over. Is there anybody that's righteous? And he finds Noah. And then there's this tower of Babel. You remember they were supposed to go out into the world and, 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 and co-create with God. And what do they do? They build a tower because we want to be like God. And God has to confuse their languages and spread them. This is the unraveling effects of sin. So what does God do? He finds another man, Abram. He said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Okay, Abraham, we're going to begin the process of restoring what was broken by sin. But guess what? When you try to fix sin and you pull on the string, how many know it just gets worse? It just gets worse. He said, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abraham. And through your descendants, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Joseph, and through Moses, we get this salvation event in Exodus where God brings the people of Israel out of Egypt. What does God give them? He gives them uh, the tabernacle. The presence of God is going to go with you. I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to give you the law. What was the law? The law was God's way of saying, how does a holy God live among an unholy people? The only way that's possible is for you to set yourself apart and be holy. So all of these rules about what you eat and what you wear and menstruation laws and all this weird stuff, it actually does serve serve a purpose. It's to set you apart. I'm gonna make Israel a people. You know what the purpose of Israel is? To show the rest of the world what it means to be God's people. And so Israel was never just the end result. Israel was always for the world. And they move into, this is, the, this is Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They move into the, the promised land, right? The perfect place. Once we get to the promised land, everything is going to be good. But there was something, a heart issue, wasn't it? Like this is the unraveling effects of sin still in the world that you get into Joshua and Judges and Ruth and, and we realize instead of the people of Israel being set apart, they just start doing what the countries and the people around them do. And it's messy, And Judges is this cycle that they can't break of being God's people and falling back into the world and God saving them. It's God's mercy again and again. You get into the historical books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and oh, we we want a king, right? If we just had a king like the rest of the people, and God says, do you really want a king? You really want somebody other than me? Okay. Even the best of them, like David, really wasn't that good. I want to be your king, but if you want another king. The prophets... Isaiah, Jeremiah, trying to bring the people of God back, but sin is unraveling. This is the unraveling effects of sin. And we see it all throughout the Old Testament, which brings us to the pinnacle of the story of you and I. And I know this isn't Christmas, but can we still talk about the incarnation real quick? Is it cool? We'll be there in a few months again, I promise. This is, this is what makes your story so significant is that here's what Jesus does. He, he says in the incarnation is the moment in human history where God says, okay, the unraveling effects of sin is so great. Now I'm going to start to redeem. I, I, I'm going to start to actually restore what's been broken because of this. And it's going to start by sending my son, right? This is the moment of all human history that hinges upon. This is the gospel, the good news that now the unraveling effects of Genesis 3, our story that just went haywire, God says, now I'm going to begin to win you back and not just through laws and rules and regulations, but through your heart. We know the work of the gospel, what Jesus does for us through his life, through his death, through his resurrection and ascension. And in the book of Acts, 
I want, you to, I want you to know this story, and I, some of you are like, I took pathway class. You guys did this in pathway. Yeah, this is a mini pathway class, all right? What does God do in the book of Acts? He says, I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit upon you. You're going to be the continuing presence of Jesus in the world. It's actually better that Jesus is ascended and my Holy Spirit is poured upon you because now instead of just being Jesus in the world trying to do everything, he's going to empower you to be mini Jesus to the world. Us, the church, empowers us in this in-between time, as we bring God's kingdom to reality, as we restore what is broken, and guess what? Jesus is returning again, amen? amen. So what Revelation teaches us, the parousia, the second coming of Christ, that God's gonna redeem, renew, restore, and we are occupying this space in between. We're no longer is the, are we experiencing the unraveling effects of sin, even though sin does exist. We are experiencing that God's kingdom is here, but not in its fullness. This is the story that you and I are living in. As followers of Jesus, we believe there is a meta-narrative, a grand narrative that gives our life meaning and context that tells us what is God like? Why am I here? What am I living for? What am I supposed to be doing? The story, if you're taking notes, following along, the story you believe will determine how you live. The narrative you adopted, the narrative you believe will determine your behavior, your action, your future. And I can't help but think there are a lot of Christians that are wondering about right now who have lost their story or don't know what their story is. You know how grieved I've been, and I know I, I pick on this a lot. I'm sorry, it's my thing. You know how grieved I've become when I saw followers of Jesus grab onto a political ideology and says, this is gonna be my story? Can you imagine Jesus showing up in the first century and says, the hope of the world is Rome, and I'm going to go and I'm going to appeal to Rome, and if Rome doesn't come on our side, then there's no hope for the future. How bizarre that would have been. Do politics matter? Absolutely. Is it our primary story? No. It's not our hope. If that's your hope, man, good luck riding that roller coaster. No, God's kingdom has come, and it's the primary story that gives our life meaning and definition. And, and so many people have lost their story. They, they've adopted a story of comfort or consumerism or ease or the American dream. Yeah, go ahead and pursue that American dream to the very end. That pot of gold that you're going to find is a mirage. And it's going to slip right through your fingertips, and you're going to be searching for something else. See, if this story has redeemed us, saved us, captured our heart, then the only response to this story is, God, here is my life. What do you want to do with it? What, what, do, you, what do you want to do with my life? My time here, this in-between that I get to occupy in my life between now and the end of my life or your second coming, God, what do you want to do with this of, of significant eternal impact? If this is your story, this has to be the question that we're asking. What are we going to do? Matthew chapter 16, I want to look at this just in a few minutes we have left. Every time Jesus confronts somebody, he calls someone. Every time Jesus has an interaction, in that moment, they've got to de determine what story they're going to live by. What, what story? I mean, think about it. Nicodemus comes at night, the woman at the well, the rich young ruler. Every person that Jesus is confronted with, what story are you going to believe? Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. These are like pinnacle moments in the Gospels. These are like... These moments of who is Jesus really? When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do, the pe who do people say the Son of Man is? They, being the disciples, replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. 
Jesus says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Jesus is asking the question, what's the narrative or the story that people believe about me? Well, most people think that you're a prophet. You're like Elijah, Moses, Jeremiah. And then what does Jesus do? He looks at them, he says, what story are you gonna believe about me? Because the story you believe about me is gonna determine what you're gonna do with me next, right? Like, are you gonna hit the road? Because it matters what you believe in the story that you adopt. Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, one of the pinnacles, again, of the Gospels is this declaration by Peter. And as dumb as Peter is throughout the Gospels, he gets it right sometimes. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. This may seem like not a big deal to you. This was a radical declaration at that moment. I mean, people are trying to figure out who Jesus is. Some of the disciples are still on the fence of like, man, seems like you have to be God in order to do these things. And for Peter to look and say, no, you're everything. You, you are the creator of the universe. You are the one that we have waited on. You are savior, redeemer of the world is a significant leap of faith to go from prophet to God is a big deal. And Peter makes this declaration. How many know Peter's declaration of faith wouldn't be just a statement of faith? It wouldn't be just something it believed. It would dictate how he would live his life, what he would do. What I love about this passage that we just read is this is field trip day with Jesus. How many know sometimes to learn something, you need a good field trip? Anybody know that? Like you can open a science book and learn about science, but you need to go to the museum and put your hand on the staticky ball and see your hair fly out, right? I mean, that's just like science, you know? It's not my thing, as obviously you can see. Um, <laughs> but like, it's, it's a good field trip, like moment, if you're like, this is way better than taking a quiz on it. I think it's significant you can go to Caesarea Philippi today and see exactly what I'm about to talk about. I think it's significant that Jesus is like, hey, 20, 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, let's take, let's take a trip. We can be there in a couple days. Caesarea Philippi is like satanic cult meets red light district meets Sin City. It's the place that you just didn't go. I mean, it's the worst of, of the worst. In fact, there were numerous gods that were worshiped in Caesarea Philippi, but the god Pan was the god of Hades, the underworld. If you go there today, there's a cave. Thousands of years ago, there was a spring waters that would come up out of the mouth of this cave. They believed that was the, the, the entrance of the underworld. That they literally believed that was the god Pan who, who was the entrance of all the dark world, underworld. So at the entrance of the cave, they would pra uh, practice child sacrifice, bestiality, you name it, if it was despicable, they practiced it. And Jesus says, let's go on a trip. Let's go to Caesarea Philippi. I mean, you, if you're the disciples and you're taking that trip, you're like, what are we doing here? You're right? <laughs> why, why, why are we going to this place? The epitome of darkness and evil. Verse six, or chapter 16, verse 17. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jodah, Peter, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. How many know that was a good field trip day? How powerful would that have been? I don't know where they were standing. But if you go to Caesarea Philippi today and you stand in front of that cave and you imagine Jesus with his disciples right there saying, you know what people think that this is? Nothing can stop you. 
Nothing can stop you. You know what he's telling Peter? He's not saying that my church is built on you, Peter. He's saying, Peter, my church is built on your confession of me. What does that mean for us? It means a lot for us. It means that we don't need a Peter. It means we need confession of Jesus as Savior and Lord. It means that you have the same power. He says, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Nothing on earth will be able to stop the power of you and the church because my Holy Spirit is within you. Let me tell you, there are times we just don't live like this, do we? And we, we just settle. Church in America in 2022, man, we got to get off the sidelines. People wonder why you're not experiencing the power of God because the power of God comes as you go and live on mission. It doesn't come as you sit back and watch. People are like, where's the power of God? In the book of Acts, the power of God was accompanied by the church going and living on mission, right? That's what we need. And to think that Jesus was there and they say, man, the story that we believe is that you're everything, you're Messiah, you're Lord and Savior. And he says, that's it. You're gonna be unstoppable. Let me tell you, the church doesn't always get it right. And I'm not talking about the four walls church. I'm not talking about the institution. I'm talking about you and me. We need reform sometimes. Sometimes we need a kick in the butt. But Jesus says, nothing will ever stop it. Like it's Jesus' bride, it's what he's returning for. And he says, you have power. Like the kingdom of God is yours. That doesn't mean we get to experience all of the future kingdom realities, but we get to experience some of them. Miracles, signs and wonders, gifts of the spirit. He says, they're gonna be poured out on you, the church, as you lift up the name of Jesus and as you go in that power. We need a church that's going, don't we? We need a church that's moving in the power of the spirit. We need a church that has attached themselves to a bigger story, not a cultural story, not a political story, not a me-centered story. No, the story of God and the mission of God is the purpose of why you live on this planet right now. What am I supposed to do? Just get a really good job and retire comfortably? No, you're supposed to live a kingdom life for Jesus and give everything that you have for him, amen? Everything. Like live and say, man, I'm, I'm emptied. I'm literally back here and, and I know it doesn't mean a lot for, for you guys. Uh, some of you get excited about it, but this list of church planters, that is my life. Some of those church planters that have planted four or five, six years ago, you know, they have planted other churches now. We're grandparents, guys. We get to be grandparents in the kingdom of God. And like, I'm friends with every one of those names. Three of them called me this week. One of them was like in crisis. We lost, lost our building. Pastor Angela, who you saw in there, they're about to launch. What are we going to do? We don't know if we're going to be in our building. Hey, you're going to be fine. The kingdom of God is not built on your building. It's the people of God, right? Trying to give some perspective of this. We get to be a part of this. You get to be a part of it. I do. Over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about a life of kingdom impact. But if we don't have a better story, how many know none of that really matters? We need a better story. What is our story? You were created for fellowship with a father and you are loved beyond your wildest imagination. I don't know how maybe the enemy has deceived you to think that God is not involved or doesn't love you. It is a lie. You were involved in the greatest love story the world has ever known and you are the center of God's story. Like God's pursuit of you. Like you are the reason 
why God would do this. Genesis 1 and 2, what God wanted for us in Genesis 1 or 2, how many know God will make right again? Your mission to join God on his mission of bringing the kingdom of God to earth through his church. A lot of people nowadays like, I love Jesus, I just don't really want the church. That's not a thing. You don't get to choose. No, it's this bride. It's the vehicle that God has used to redeem the world for us to partner together with God. Your future, God will recreate, renew, redeem, and restore everything that has been broken by sin into a life of unending joy and fellowship with him. That's why we don't fear. We don't cower back. We don't sit around and be like, well, what, man, what if something happens to me? Well, if something happens to you, you know your future, don't you? Right? This is our story. This is our mission. This is our future. What story are you living in right now? Man, we got to activate the church to be the body of Christ again, to live on mission, reject ease and comfort and the easy way, the American dream. You stand your feet with me across this room, grab your communion elements, if you will. We need a better story. If you would, just right where you're at, close your eyes. Let's have a moment. Ask the Holy Spirit to do a deep work in your heart today, in my heart. God may be speaking something specifically today through his word to you. Maybe there's some dreams that have been dormant. Maybe you stopped dreaming. And you kind of started sitting on the sidelines for a season and days turned into weeks and week turns into months and months turns into years. And you're just like, man, this is not how, it's not what I wanted my legacy to be. Jesus is inviting you back into this story of adventure, of walking with the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're in the room today, every head bowed, every eye closed. I don't embarrass you. We don't make people come up front here. This is a personal decision. Your public moment is baptism. This is a personal decision. Maybe you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. No matter what you may think about what's happened to you or who God is, you are loved more than you would ever, ever know. God is relentlessly being pursuing you. And I want to invite you into relationship with him today. In just a minute, we're going to take the body and the blood of Jesus. I invite you to take Jesus as Lord and Savior right where you're at and just let go of your way. Take a better story, a story that will never leave you wanting more. For the rest of us, we're going to prepare our hearts right now to receive. Even as we went through the story of God this morning, when they were under the law and the old ways, there was animal sacrifice and all these things that had to be done. And Jesus says, no, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna once and for all pay the price. Shed my blood, die on a cross so that you can have life eternal. And every Sunday we live into that story. That is the story. This is the event that gives our life meaning that dictates how we walk out of this place, how we live. This is our identity.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your story. We thank you for this, what you've done for us. As we enter into this sacred act of communion, Father, would it not become just routine? Not just something we do every week, but we live into the story that is bigger than us. God, thank you, Father, that you saw our mess and you stepped into it. Thank you for that incarnation moment that was the hinge of human history that changed everything. Thank you, Father. Thank you. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he passed around to his disciples. He said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the body of Christ together. Jesus took the cup, shed blood, poured out for you and I, that one day when you and I stand before God, God will not see our sin. He will see the blood of Jesus. Thankful for that. Let's take together. Would you take just this last 30 seconds and practice thankfulness and gratitude right where you're at? In your own way, just thank God. Every week, our response to the gospel is worship, gratitude. Father, here is our life. God, thank you for the saving work that you have done in us and through us. Thank you, Father, for what you've done. That we would live into this story this week, Father. We would live into this story as we walk out of this place, join you on your mission for whatever amount of time we have left, Father. We join you on this mission. We thank you, Father. Thank you. As we were taking communion, man, I, I honestly, I know this may sound weird, but I can't wait. We actually designed the new building in a way where everybody's sitting kind of around the stage in sections. Before COVID hit, we would get up out of our seats and go to communion stations, have time for prayer, reflection, where you would come up and take. All of that's we're doing again. We've designed the building around that. And I can't wait to make this moment like that again. You know, uh, communion to go just doesn't do it for me, but it's what we have to do right now. But it's going to be awesome when we get to bring that back here in a few months and just have that be a part of our worship again uh, at the end. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come forward. If you need prayer for anything before you leave today, grab one of them. Love to agree with you before you leave. If you're a first time guest, I'd love to meet you in the welcome room just across the lobby, just 30 seconds of your time. We have a free gift for you, just as our way of saying thanks for being our guest. Then last but not least, if you have this uh, today or in the next few weeks, bring this with you. And this is our all in moment for you who are on our team to say, hey, we're with you. And for you who are not to say, man, we wanna join you to help maximize this opportunity that we have. You can take this, fill it out online or drop it in one of the giving boxes when you leave this morning. Thank you for your partnership and praying and believing with us on this journey. Let's end with our mission statement. Go live it out this week, wherever you are, be the gospel. Be the gospel.